Sure, welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast, episode number 106. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. We're in the Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, where we do our daily show each weekday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time, coincidentally called Downtown. You can hear it on the Zone Radio stations of Maine, streaming audio available on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. Today's show, well, every show, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll talk some television. We'll talk some rock and roll this time around with two interesting guests on the program. The Hollywood Reporter's correspondent and author Mark Freeman and music journalist Greg Renoff will join us as well to talk about the book he co-wrote with legendary producer Ted Templeman. But we get things underway this afternoon by welcoming back to the program Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter, who has put together a wonderful oral history of Modern Family, one of the most groundbreaking shows in television history. And while he talked with everybody associated with the program, writers, producers, directors, actors, behind-the-scenes folk, made for a wonderful look back at a very important television show, Modern Family. Here's our conversation with author Mark Freeman. You have done so many wonderful oral histories through the years. What drew you to Modern Family? I would say it's working on Frasier, um, one of the showrunners, Chris Lloyd, who's just the sweetest guy, and, and so he had co-created um, Modern Family. And uh, there's also a casting director of Frasier who went over to Modern Family, and I kind of just looked at the opportunity of a show I liked with people I know with the unique perspective of it wasn't just backward-looking, like most oral histories are, but you could incorporate the present, as in capture the last year of the show, and in a sense, future, because when I started writing it, they were still filming the last year of the show. And we forget that when Modern Family went on the air, the family sitcoms were sort of disappearing. There weren't many left at that time. Yeah, there was uh, this kind of backing off of um, sitcoms in general because of the writer's strike in 2008. And then at the same time, as Chris mentions in the book and some of the writers, the, the tone was very snarky. There was a lot of snarky sitcoms, and there's nothing wrong with that humor. I, I love it myself. But the idea of balancing some pathos and, and heart with humor um, was rather had been off kilter for a while and they were bringing it back and it wasn't considered what the cool kids would do but they uh, at some point somebody has to evolve into a different format again and the idea behind this was to present well as as they called it in the original title uh my american family uh became a very different look at things uh first of all in the way they shot the show sort of taking that mockumentary style from the office and others but giving it their own unique approach yeah, the thing about the mockumentary style, which is kind of interesting, is some people watch it and they think, oh, there must really be a documentary crew there. And some people watch it and they just forget about it. Uh, the office in the last year, they revealed there was a documentary crew. It was one little send-away shot um, it, sometime during that last year. But what Modern Family did was they liked the format because the other co-creator, Steve Levitan, had worked with it, and what he really liked about it was it required minimal lighting, you could do sloppier camera work, and, and you could shoot things so much faster. But the problem for the writers then became, is this a documentary or not? And so when they would plan scenes and write them out, they'd run to the set, and they'd look around and go, could a camera fit here, or could a camera fit there, <laughs> and, and would a documentary crew be able to do this? And at some point, Steve and Chris both said, it's just the style. It's done, never mind, it's just the style. And, and people, people forgave that. Uh, they, didn't, it, they weren't bothered by it. Um, and one other relevant point, too, which Steve made, uh, is he said if it, if it was a documentary, even as a mockumentary, you wouldn't like these people as much because they'd be allowing invasiveness into their homes, watching their kids grow up and doing things that just wouldn't be conducive of a true family and a supportive family. And, and Steve Levitan, in your book, uh, talked a lot about how this, this was not going to be Seinfeld, that he wanted some heart, and he wanted you to, to like these people, and I, I guess maybe learn some things as well, and clearly people did that over the course of 11 seasons. Yeah, I, one of the interesting things 
when I did a little math, um, was that you had three storylines, three A storylines pervading through each episode, unless there was a all the family gathers together kind of thing, um, which meant over the course of 250 episodes, you had 750 plots. And within those plots, especially in the early years when they were taking episodes from their lives, there were kind of lessons learned, but not in the Leave it to Beaver, Brady Bunch sense. They were just reflections of family and the imperfections of family. And with that, you could kind of be forgiving and introduce heart, and it's not just slapstick because our lives aren't slapstick, although we do a lot of stupid things and say a lot of stupid things that we may regret. At the end of the day, like any other family, we're sloppy imperfections that love each other, and the show really reflected that well. I was fascinated by the behind-the-scenes work of the show, the relationship between Chris Lloyd and Steve Levitan, and how essentially there were... There were two writers' rooms, and yet they somehow managed to make that work. Yeah, it was an interesting dynamic. Some would say the most interesting because it was seamless. But what they discovered early on, and, and it's kind of not surprising, as Steve's agent points out, that most partnerships don't continue. And in their case, they were both established in their field. They were friends. And they put the show together after another previous show. And so, as they will say and anyone will say, they're both alpha males in their own way. And they have very different styles of doing shows. And so early on, there was a lot of friction because the writers would go to one person who would give them notes. And then they'd go to the second person who would give them different notes. And then the first person would say, wait, this isn't what we talked about. And then the second person would say the same. And they realized that their tastes were so different that it was better if they did you know, every other episode. And, and the benefit for the writers, they said, was it kept the show fresh because you had a new flavor every other week. And it wasn't the repetition of being in the same room. You would break into different rooms within the writer's building uh, and work with different people. And you could have acceptable behavior of characters with one room that you couldn't do in the other. <laughs> you could also be the naughty kid who pitches it in one room, get, it doesn't work, and then you bring it to the next room the following week, and maybe it does work. So they're all, it, it was complex, but as they both say in the end, it is seamless. And if you, if you don't know that fact, you wouldn't know it by watching the show. We're talking with Mark Freeman on Downtown. Obviously, uh, casting director Jeff Greenberg had his hands full to put together such a, a large cast, and it was interesting to read uh, the stories about the, the assembling of the cast. And the, the key role of Jay Pritchett almost didn't go to Ed O'Neill. Can you tell that story? Yeah, so it, it kind of shows about if you plant a seed in someone's mind. When they wrote the pilot script, they put pictures of prototypes of who they saw these characters being. And the prototype for Jay was Craig T. Nelson. And so when it came time to deciding the role, they had it down to Craig and they had it down to Ed. And they showed it to the ABC executives and they went with Craig pretty much because they seen his picture in the pilot script that they had read. But what ultimately ended up happening was that Craig looked at it as a starring vehicle and it really, as Jeff had said, it's an ensemble, which Ed was willing to do after having been the lead in Married with Children. And Craig, I think, just didn't quite understand what the show was going to be. He went on to Parenthood, so he was fine. <laughs> but uh, uh, they really just gravitated towards Ed in general because he's just a master storyteller. Well, the other thing that I, I loved about it, one of my favorite chapters of the book is uh, talking about uh, Ed O'Neill's book of acting, and uh, he liked people to be efficient with your time. Yeah, so it, it's a pretty funny thing that I was told about early on that Ty Burrell and Eric Stone Street had gathered, which were things over decades of his career that he had learned to make things move faster or reduce imperfections, um, the, some of them being about, you know, why stand when you can sit, why sit <laughs> when you can lie down. Um, if you watch any scene of Ed on the series, you'll see he's sitting a lot, and he also manages to leave the frame with the idea being if you leave the scene, 
then if they do pickups from other angles, you don't have to be there. And, <laughs> and if you can shoot the rehearsal, why not shoot the rehearsal instead of just doing a rehearsal and shooting the ap- actual episode? And, and he was so proud um, when he, he was telling me about the eating, how you always start a scene with a fork in your mouth and you pull it out and you're chewing and it looks like you have food. And he was saying he never had any food in his mouth and to him, that was great because you could choke on it, you could cough on it, you could ruin a take, which meant another take. So he had it down to a science. It was also so a key for the couples to be believable, and maybe the biggest stretch, at least going in, was the idea of Ed O'Neill and Sofia Vergara. But man, they put that to rest pretty early and realized, and Sofia said it, that it was going to be easy to be convincing that she could fall in love with Jay Pritchett. Yeah, they they made a whole scenario that they had worked out together so that it would work and it wouldn't be one of those Hollywood old man, young, attractive woman kind of things. Um, And that the way that they saw the relationship progressing was initially she was coming from a bad situation with a flaky dad to Manny and that Jay would be a good provider and would be either a good influence or just nice to Manny, even if he didn't accept it as his kid. And that in time, he she grew to love him and saw all the good beneath maybe the exterior gruff of his. And, and the two of them got along so well that it was believable and the age difference kind of disappeared. You could see the success of him. You could see the importance of family to her. You could see how they bounced off of each other in their little disagreements or loving actions. And that, you know, it worked very well. And I love the way that uh, uh, Manny Rico Rodriguez has described a 10-year-old Antonio Banderas. Yeah, there was a... Chris took the character from, in his mind, from a book. And Steve saw it as that um, Banderas. And in both instances, although they're different origins, it's very much the same of somebody ahead of his time in his years and in, in his romanticism, who because of that will never fit in in school, but will probably do okay later in life because at some point people will catch up to him and appreciate the depth of his uh, character and his emotional uh, context thought. Uh, the writers constantly looked uh, for ideas that they could mine from their real lives, and that extended to cast members as well. Uh, particularly one of the most memorable uh, episodes of the show, Fizbo the Clown, that was that was real. Almost every detail, including uh, some of that costume, were part of Eric Stone, uh, Stone Street's real life. Well, one of the things the writer said, which was funny, even though Eric's came from his life, was that you almost, it was almost like therapy in the writer's room. You would talk about anything and everything from your life, awkward moments, and so And so at the very beginning of the show, they thought, let's talk to the actors, too, and see what they want these characters to be, and at the same time, see what we can hone from their life. And Eric, just in passing, had mentioned that he had a passion with being a clown since childhood. And Chris heard that and said, you wouldn't happen to have pictures of this. <laughs> and Eric said, oh, oh, I got pictures. And he brought in a book in the end, and he showed the book to them, and they incorporated some of the pictures from his childhood clowning into the episode. And then for him, he got to design his ultimate clown outfit, which was Fisbo, which was the name of his clown character as a kid and he got to use pieces of that costume for the grown-up Fisbo um, which is kind of, it's interesting Fisbo works alone as a great funny character but to know that it actually came from his life just adds a whole other element to it. And the uh, the great moment when Fisbo uh, flips out on a guy at a gas station that was a real life incident but it didn't happen to Eric Stone Street. No, it, it happened to Ed O'Neill, and, and you know, Ed, Ed says one of the great things about Ed is he's very reflective. He will look back and he will say, I, I shouldn't have done this, not for specific behavior, but in just his attitudes and his some of his actions when he was younger. And he said he used to not always have the best of tempers, um, and that in this particular instance at the gas station, he was looking at his car. It was a Porsche, and he really just was admiring it while filling up his gas tank, and that he was standing far enough back there that the car behind him was moving up to use the gas 
um, tank behind him or the gas station pump behind him. And it ended up bumping into him. And he ended up having a stare up with the guy pounding his fist on the guy's uh, hood and denting it and thought this was going to be on, this was happening. And, and then the other guy backed off. And the punchline to Ed was he thought in the end, and he's pretty sure that it was the director, Michael Mann, who he had actually <laughs> worked with on Miami Vice, um, but that they ultimately avoided the, the fist-to-fist, fisticuffs, <laughs> I think is what they call it. Hey, there is an interesting uh, story of uh, the history of female writers on the show. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was something I had been told early on from people in production. And, and the thing about it, which is kind of fascinating, is the writers in the room, the male writers, they brought it up too. And, and what the issue was was that the women writers oftentimes didn't come back for a second year. There's, there's one writer... Elaine, who lasted the, the the entire run of the show, and there were some others who lasted two to three years, but the majority lasted one year. And they, the male writers, didn't understand why, didn't know if they were complicit in what happened to cause it. And I kind of felt the only way to really tackle the issue, which apparently was well known in Hollywood, was to talk to the women writers themselves. And the only way I was going to do that chapter was if it was only talking about their experiences. And what's interesting in the end is the issues that they raise and the way they talk about it is bigger than any one show. I'd shown it to other people um, in other fields, uh, women, and and they had all said that they related to what it was like to be in a room full of men. And some of the issues, like I said, they're beyond modern family. It just happened to be, in this instance, a microcosm of a larger issue in and of itself. Um, and so ultimately the women, and this is the other interesting thing, the women really like the male writers. They're still friends with them. They're, they're friends with the showrunners. It's just the experience within the room was difficult for them, and there were definitely things that could be done differently, not just in their room, but in any writer's room and in any industry or field, really. Because of the way they, they shot the show in, in the mockumentary style and because you were dealing with, with the three separate storylines within each show, the schedule was very different, but it also went at a very fast pace, and I thought it was interesting that, that not all the guest actors had an easy time adjusting to the pace of shooting. Well, you know, another interesting thing, uh, which I didn't mention in the book, uh, too, is that you talk to an actor about a certain guest star, and they say, I never saw that person, because they would shoot Monday, Tuesday, and the and the guest star would be with Phil and Claire on Wednesday, and then Thursday, Friday would be Mitch and Cam. But the the guest stars themselves, they would come in, and they could film their scenes within one day, but what they were used to in normal sitcom world, if it's a four-camera live audience or even if it's being filmed, is they're used to an establishing shot, which is far away. They're used to camera resetting and relighting to do medium shots, which you think is waist up. They'll do close-ups later, so that's face. And you have to take all the time to readjust everything, your cameras and your lighting, as I was saying. And uh, what this show managed to do in the mockumentary was... Um, Bags, James Bagdonis, who uh, is the cameraman, and he was also the cinematographer, and he was also directed a bunch of episodes. He came up with this universal lighting where you didn't have to keep setting it, and that the movement of the camera from a medium to a close-up to a far shot to a pan and scan, all that could be done on one take. So the actors who were guest stars, they'd come on and they'd say, well, okay, so when are we doing my close-up? And they'd say, oh, no, it's already done. That's what the camera would tell them. We're, we're done. We can move on. And so often the show was done by lunchtime, which was the envy of the industry. They'd get there around 7 a.m., and they'd be done by 1 or 2 in the afternoon because they could, as um, producer Jeff Morton mentioned, you could turn 45 minutes of setup and 15 minutes of shooting in an hour. You could reverse it to 45 minutes of shooting and 15 of set up with this kind of way that they had configured. Uh, it really seems uh, like it's a good group of people. They welcomed you to the show, and obviously that, that started with the showrunners and, and the fact that you did know some of them beforehand, but I don't know, they just genuinely came across as, 
as good people who appreciated the opportunity they've been given. And, and I wonder if, if for a lot of the actors, it's because so many of them had paid their dues uh, so long getting to this point. I think that's definitely a, a valid point. Outside of Ed, who had also done was married with children 11 years of a show, most of these people were not known commodities. You could say someone like Jesse Tyler Ferguson was successful on Broadway and off-Broadway, um, but he wasn't successful necessarily on television. And Eric Stone Street's the best example because, as he said, the longest gig he had ever had on television was for eight days. <laughs> and so these people were coming in. Even Julie Bowen, she had been on um, another series. Uh, was it Ed? I think it was. Right. Uh, and uh, she was on that for three or four years and had done other guest star. She was a known face, recognizable. But for everybody, this was, especially the kids too, this was going to be the biggest thing of their career. They knew early on the show was going to be bigger than them. And they, as Ed said to Eric very early on, if this show doesn't last 10 years, I don't know what the, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I shouldn't be in this industry. Uh, Because they could just see it. The writing was so different and funny in its own way and unique. Um, and they were just so happy to be there. They, they would have they would have stayed within another 20 years if, if, if they could come up with 20 years more worth of plots. Do you have a favorite episode over the course of those 11 years? I don't know if I have like a one. I, I would have parts of, of, of episodes. There, there's one that I like in particular, um, which is spoken about a little in the book, which is Up All Night. And, and Chris Lloyd didn't write a lot of the episodes, uh, he would rewrite them with the writers. Um, but but Up All Night came from him, and, and when I told him it was one of my favorites, he actually was really happy because it was one of his favorites. And it was the main plot of it that he liked so much was um, it was based on this writer, Danny Zucker, who woke up in the middle of the night with these horrible pains, which ended up, I believe, being kidney stones. But he had this horrific pain. He's in his underwear in bed. They call the uh, emergency, the ambulance, and the people <laughs> knew in that area that those people tended to be hunks, like the UPS calendar <laughs> people. And so when he's calling for his wife, when they ring at the doorbell, he can't, he can't see her and he can't hear her. And she's like yelling for her and he comes by and he says that she had dressed up for the, for the emergency responders. And uh, in the scene, what Chris builds on it with is, that he gets all these confessions um, because Luke thinks his dad's going to die, and he confesses that he was the one who broke the coffee table that ended up getting um, the cleaner uh, deported from the country. (laughs) It's it's just all this, like, crazy stuff. And Chris was recalling it as we were talking about it, and he was cracking up just as far... Because you could push it as far as you want, especially the way that Ty was acting uh, with it, and it's, it's worth seeing it just for that. But that, that's the one that, that popped into my mind first. They got to say a, a goodbye to Fred Willard's character on the show. And then, of course, this weekend, uh, Fred passed away at 86. And just everybody acknowledged uh, his comic genius. Uh, very few that had his level of talent when it came to comedy. You know, it's, it's amazing the outpouring from, that came from Hollywood in general to Fred when he passed. I knew, I knew he was definitely moving slower I uh, the table read for that episode of which you mentioned the farewell. I was there for the script development, and I was supposed to be there for the table read, but they had to push it off because they wanted Fred there, and Fred um, wasn't able to make it on the original day. Um, but they said, yeah, he's, he's kind of definitely older and frail, but the mind is still as sharp as can be. And, and when I interviewed him, I thought. You know, am I going to get here? Am I going to get someone frail? Or you wouldn't know. Ed sounded not Ed. Sorry, Fred. They rhyme. No, Fred <laughs> sounded great, and Fred was making jokes, and I was talking to him about shows from 20 years ago, and he had very specific memories of them, and he he was as funny as can be, and and I think what people appreciated most about him was that that character that he created, the one who was oblivious obliviously happy the things he'd say would be inappropriate but there was no meanness behind them and and he was able to just improv everything and anything which started with spinal tap and then worked its way up through other things now 
Spot Pop not being his first one because he had done Fernwood Tonight and right. some of the Norman Lear programming, but that was one that seemed to really resonate with people. Um, so, yeah, everyone loved working with Fred. Well, this is just such a wonderful read. Uh, I loved it. I love the show, but uh, hearing it uh, from the perspective of all the people involved, I think it just uh, increased my love and admiration for it. And uh, it, it drops tomorrow officially. If people want to grab the book, got to do it. It's Modern Family, the untold oral history of one of television's groundbreaking sitcoms. Mark, congratulations on a terrific work here. I know you're relieved it's over, but uh, we get to enjoy the, the fruits of all of your labors. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me, as always. Always always good to talk to you, Rich. All right. Thank you, Mark. Be well. You too. Mark Freeman talking about his book, Modern Family, the untold oral history of one of television's groundbreaking sitcoms. That book just out this week. We'll take a little break and hear from our friends at Cross Insurance. When we return, we'll talk about one of the legendary producers of rock and roll, the guy behind Van Halen, the Doobie Brothers, and more, Ted Templeman. We'll chat with his co-author, Greg Renoff, up next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast. Let's listen to a little bit of Ted Templeman's handiwork here. As he produced one of the biggest hits for Van Halen. Templeman produced Van Halen, Doobie Brothers, Van Morrison, countless acts through the years. He's got a brand new book out, As Told, to music journalist Greg Renoff. The book is Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. We had a chance to talk about it with Greg Renoff. The book was fantastic, a wonderful read, and uh, the story of how it all started is interesting, too. Uh, you got to know Ted interviewing him for your last book, Van Halen Rising, but but the name Ted Templeman had kind of been uh, sitting around in your memory since about 1984, it sounds like. Yeah, uh, when I uh, became a Van Halen fan, I got my start with the 1984 album, and uh, I just loved the way it sounded, and I loved everything about it, and quickly became a, a big uh, fan. I dove back into their catalog, and I, you know, it was one of those things that you, you started seeing the same name over and over again, obviously, the guys in the band, but Ted Templeman had produced their, their previous five albums, and that continued for me uh, in the months that followed and the years that followed, actually. I remember very distinctly picking up uh, the Eric Clapton Behind the Sun album after hearing it on the radio and looking at the record store. I heard the single, and I think it was She's Waiting, and I liked it, and I was like, oh, Ted Templeman produced this, too. Well, I bought that one, too, and so, yeah, I was a fan of Ted Templeman. Um, from way back when I was a kid, too, uh, just you know, tracking sort of the, the the sound of albums, and there were you know a number of producers that sort of would be ones you would kind of remember that made records you liked the way they sounded, and Ted was always at the very top of that list for me. And I like the way he explained to his vision of his job to you, and he said he he thought of himself as a lighting guy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about Ted's career, which is laid out in the book. Which is that he started off as a as a uh, in the business really as a as a musician slash uh, vocalist. He uh, he became uh, fairly well known through his band Harper's Bazaar. He and four other friends of his from Santa Cruz formed this band, and they were signed at Warner Brothers, and they had a pretty good good run of success from about sixty seven to nineteen seventy. And Ted performed on TV. Um, he he performed in stadiums with Bob Hope, Rakka Welch. Uh, he played uh, a show with. Louis Armstrong at one point, he was on TV with Muhammad Ali. And so they had a really, you know, they had a good run as a, as a, as a pop group that was quite popular. And, uh, you know, he, he talked to me about how you know, he never really felt super comfortable on the role. He never really enjoyed the, the spotlight being on him as much as he enjoyed music. And when he had the opportunity to start to learn the ropes in the studio from hanging around while he was making records for Harper's Bazaar, 
you know, he'd stay after school, so to speak, and learn from the engineers and the producers that he was working with. And, and that allowed him to, as you mentioned, transition from that leg man where he really was much more comfortable trying to think with artists and collaborate with them about how to make their music um, more appealing to the public and how to make their ideas grow and develop in the studio and, you know, on them. So that was his, that was his mindset. Yeah, he played a lot of different instruments. He was a vocalist. He was interested in, in jazz as a young guy and had a lot of diverse interests. Did that versatility serve him well as a producer? I mean, it definitely did. I think it's interesting. I mean, even even late in the writing process with the book, there's a uh, a flugelhorn solo on uh, on an album that he did with a, a vocalist named Nicolette Larson, who had a big hit in 1979 with A Lot of Love. And I was talking to Ted about that that song. It just kind of came up, and he said, "Oh, I wrote. I basically wrote the flugelhorn solo." So he he pulled out his trumpet. He was a trumpet player that night before the studio, and kind of wrote out his his basic um, idea for the the melody for the trumpet solo, and the, and the flugelhorn player played it. And uh, yeah, Ted was actually started off as a drummer and played drums in Harper's Bazaar before he actually stepped out in front of the band and was one of the vocalists, and also was uh, quite adept on piano. Uh, so he played organ on a couple of Van Morrison songs, and he played it on a Montrose song. And then, um, you know, his other instruments really uh, were uh, guitar. He played some guitar, too, played some banjo, played some guitar. So, yeah, he was a, you know, he was a musician uh, through and through, which really did serve him well. He performed um, on a number of the albums that he uh, produced, uncredited in often cases, but oftentimes um, in a more um, famous example is when he played and was credited on uh, What a Fool Believes. He played right. drums on that track as the band Doobie Brothers were trying to finish off this uh, long, long uh, campaign to finish this song, What a Fool Believes, which they were really struggling to get right. And Ted hopped on the drum kit, and that was the take that actually made the record. And so, yeah, Ted played on a number one hit by the Doobie Brothers, just, just out of, you know, trying to get those guys to kind of follow along with what he had ideas for a tempo that they weren't quite getting right in the studio. And so it was just you know, just a kind of a fluky thing, but yet he played on a number one hit by the Doobie Brothers. Talking with Greg Renoff here on Downtown. The book is Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. I love the story of Ted going to see a session for Frank Sinatra and his impressions of what Jimmy Bowen was doing, or, or in this case, maybe not doing as producer. Yeah, I mean, I think that really was another another key moment. Ted talked to me a lot about that night that he saw Sinatra. I mean, you can imagine he was a young kid. He had never made a record before, but he had a deal with Warner Brothers, and so he was hanging around the studio, and Sinatra walked in in Hollywood, and Ted kind of followed down the hallway and kind of whispered to one of the engineers, can I watch? And they said, yeah, you can watch. He stayed in the back and watched. Um, you know, he, he, he said that uh, at that point in time, you know, he really didn't know what a producer did, but he was he was watching Jimmy Bowen, who was obviously was a hit maker. I mean, he was the guy who picked some of Sinatra's biggest hit songs and had a long career as a producer. But, you know, Sinatra was Sinatra. He was sort of a, you know, it was sort of an unusual example for Ted to see, but he saw this this performer, this, this uh, artist basically, you know, saying, let's take it again. And Jimmy Bowen kind of going, let's take it again, because Frank wanted to do it. You know, Frank wants another take. We're going to do another take. And, uh, so Ted was kind of struck by that, that, you know, that even a, um, you know, a producer may be in a situation where you're dealing with uh, the biggest stars in the industry. Maybe that's not the right thing to do. Uh, that was just his initial impression, thinking kind of the, of the idea of what he thought the producer should, quote, unquote, run the session. But that made a big impression on Ted. Uh, Ted also saw Elvis thing in the studio. Again, they one of these sort of, uh, coincidental things where he happened to be in town and one of the engineers he knew told him that Elvis was coming in. This was this was a little bit later after Ted was already a pretty successful recording artist in his own right, but he got to watch Elvis record in Hollywood and he said that was incredible as well. So yeah, those, those are two big formative experiences for Ted Templeman to be able to see Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley in a studio situation sitting him sitting in the control room just kind of watching these sessions and it was it was a big big moment in his life. I thought that was a very interesting, too, and he talked about the professionalism of Elvis and, and his uh, his respect to everybody around him in the studio, the desire to do it right, but but not playing the star, just in there being a pro, but nailing it often on the first take, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really something, too, Ted really talked to me about, which was Ted grew up in the age of the Wrecking Crew. And, you know, he actually tells me all the time, we didn't call it the Wrecking Crew in the 60s, you know, that kind of came later, but that you know the the, uh, the records that Ted made as a uh, recording um, artist were the instrumentation was almost wholly done by those studio musicians. Everyone from Leon Russell to Glenn Campbell, these these great great musicians who would come in 
after getting the call, and they would sign up and uh, for these you know, three-hour sessions, and it would record you know good vibrations or whatever. But they play all the instruments, and so you know I think that was a big a big part of Ted's formative experience as well to kind of see how these sessions were done in a very professional manner. I mean, it was obviously later on um, as the rock era changed, there was a lot more of uh, you know like Fleetwood Mac spending <laughs> three months in the studio mm-hmm. and something like that. It was you know it was actually they were done on union rate, and there was actually rules about how many songs you could record in a in a session they were very regimented with these um studio musicians were all part of the union and so it was you know i think that also made an impression on ted about having to um you know make you a place for work it was a place where you obviously going to create art and try to have a good time but it was also some place where it was not a uh applying to just you know waste time or just uh screw around van morrison gave ted a great opportunity to co-produce with him and uh, van has always been an interesting, a mysterious guy, but they, they formed an interesting relationship, and I thought it was a very touching story about Van Morrison going to the hospital when Ted's wife was giving birth. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about, about Van Morrison. I mean, I think Ted, um, you know, one of the things Ted talks about in the book is he did an interview around 1980 where he joked a little bit about Van Morrison's quirky personality and his penchant for firing people, and it got printed, and Ted felt terrible about that because you know, Ted always felt that he got on very well with Van, and even if, you know, obviously there were moments where Van was not the easiest person to deal with, but yeah, as you mentioned, uh, he considered Van a friend, and that Van, when uh, Ted's wife uh, was struggling with the pregnancy, the birth of their first child, she was having trouble in labor, Van Morrison actually came down to Los Angeles from San Francisco, flew down to be with Ted, and, you know, kind of take his mind off it, and that was, uh, you know, a touching, a touching moment for Ted, and, you know, really kind of again humanized, you know, the guy who sort of, you know, kind of had a reputation for being a curmudgeon, but was obviously sensitive enough to that situation and to make a pick a flame flight down there to talk to Ted and kind of spend time with him. So yeah, Ted, uh, Ted really did have a, a lot of great things to say about Van Morrison. And, you know, I think it'd be the thing if Van ever heard this interview or anything else that Ted would write about in the book, I think Ted really tried to make clear that he was great. Van, Van gave him a chance, you know, Van Morrison, that was a big star and that Ted was his very first, first, producing, you know, Van and Teddy kind of hit it off over their mutual interest in jazz music, and and uh, Van gave them a chance, and they ended up uh, hitting it pretty big with Wild Night. That was a big hit for, for Van and really Ted's first hit as a producer. So Ted's very, very grateful for everything he learned and, and for Van for giving him a chance. One of the great successes of Ted's career and, and one of the enduring relationships was with the Doobie Brothers. Uh, what did he hear in that biker band that made him think they could be successful? You know, I think it's interesting. He heard the songs. I mean, I think that was what comes down to too. There's always Ted. It was always two things. It was always the songs, uh, the quality of the songs, and that kind of thing. That's kind of obvious. But for Ted, one of the things he taught me in writing this book with him was about distinctiveness, especially with singers. It can be with guitar players and other instruments too. But for vocalists, particularly on the pop radio, when he heard the Duke Brothers sing on their demo tape that Ted heard as a tape listener at Warner Brothers, he thought they had these really great, interesting. Uh, two-part harmony sound, which he thought was, was kind of uh, kind of unique. They had just a, you know, something a little bit special. He said it kind of reminded them later years, he kind of compared it a little bit to the Eagles, obviously not as maybe as um, elaborate as the Eagles' harmonies, but it had that same sort of thing that kind of sticks in your ear. And uh, they went and uh, Ted was able to take a, a fellow Warner Brothers producer, well, the guy who produced Harper's Bazaar with them, to, to Santa Cruz, and they was even more interesting because they saw this band for the first time. They laid eyes on them. And they were a biker band. They were playing for Hell's Angels. And yet they were singing these very angelic, um, almost Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young style harmonies while wearing leather and chains and these heavy black boots. And so Ted thought that was an interesting contrast as well. But for Ted, it was the song, you know, the songs that he heard um, on that tape that he thought, wow, these guys are really talented. And then even more so when he saw the image and heard the, heard the vocals uh, live, he thought this is a really great band. And of course, they went on to be super successful. Really surprised to read the story of Blackwater that began... Uh, as a B-side, and then uh, finally decided to release it when other singles on the album didn't do as well as they hoped. And, and he kind of went back into some of the vocal work, the a cappella work, uh, and the arrangements that have been used back in the Harper's Bizarre days to create uh, what you guys point out in the book is really the big hook in that number one song. Yeah, that was another interesting conversation. I had a number of these with Ted about picking singles, and he talked about how you know, he had a sort of a mixed record on that. I mean, I think the thing is, that was something that Ted mentioned that one of the first lessons he learned as a burgeoning producer was from his mentor, Lenny Walker, who produced so many big records for Warner Brothers and, and later on went on to become the president of Warner Brothers that told Ted, like, don't 
stick your albums full of filler. In other words, there was a tendency, especially in the 60s, to have like the one hit, and then you just pack the album with another songs that were just kind of throwaways that were known as filler. And uh, you know, that continued, continued into the later years as well. But uh, Lenny really impressed upon Ted, like, get the good songs on the records, because you never really know for sure what the best song is going to be in a single. Sometimes they can be surprised to you. And that was what happened with Blackwater, which was that Blackwater was this little acoustic song, as you mentioned, with this um, acapella part in the middle of it. And uh, Ted just didn't think it was, you know, he heard it. He just didn't think it was a, a radio song. I mean, he thought it was a good song. He put it on the record, but he didn't think it was a radio song. Yes, so it was the B-side of the first single off that record, which usually is a uh, indication that that's the weakest song on the on the uh, album in terms of marketability. And so, yes, Ted had to, you know, point out a couple of times he would just joke to me. He goes, well, you know, I uh, my, yeah, basically his track record was mixed. He obviously <laughs> had a lot of success with some singles he picked. Or Dance the Night Away by Van Halen, for example, was a big hit. That was the, obviously the first single off that album, Van Halen 2. And you know, You Really Got Me by Van Halen, another big hit, their first single. But other ones, he says he said that was a, interesting because it actually took off kind of organically on, on radio. Just just DJs flipped, the, right. flipped the, the single over and said, oh, this is a good song. We'll start playing this. And you know, before you knew it, it had spread, uh, spread across the country. So, yeah. But, uh, of course, that's the type of mistake that you'll, uh, you'll own for the rest of your life because it's the number one hit. <laughs> Uh, the book also dispels the notion that some fans have that uh, Tom Johnston and, and Michael McDonald were some sort of arch rivals. Uh, there was actually a great deal of uh, respect and admiration between them. Yeah, I mean, that's really was something that I was a little bit surprised about. I never gave it that much thought, but I kind of always expected that was the case. That was more of a popular narrative. And you know, Ted said that they always um, were very respectful to each other and cordial. And, um, you know, I think I think Mike McDonald, I've never spoken to him personally, but from the way Ted explained it is that Mike, kind of always felt as if he was stepping into the shoes of Tom Johnson and had such huge respect for Tom because Tom, you know, to Mike McDonald in 1975-76, it was Tom Johnson that built the Doobie Brothers. It was it was uh, China Grove. It was Long Train Running. It was all these great hits that Tom had, had written and was kind of the distinctive voice of the of the Doobie Brothers. And so, um, you know, there was this, this real mutual respect. And then from Tom's uh, perspective, I, you know, he he certainly understood that Mike was was – Stepping into the band because my, uh, because Tom was ill and couldn't couldn't play wasn't it sort of he was you know some sort of hostile takeover of the band it was just a, a thing where they needed somebody to kind of jump in there to, to front the band and uh, yeah Ted always talked about to me how much he liked the it was kind of a handful of times that Tom and Mike played on the same track that he just you know he wanted to be one big family and just said okay now we've got another guy who can sing it's great you know you can the Doobie Brothers had been a band that had kind of had worked on that dual lead vocalist to some extent with because um pat simmons always did a couple lead vocals mm-hmm. every every album two or three songs pat would sing and so there was always this kind of diversity of voices you had tom out in front is the most prominent of those but um you know it just didn't it didn't work out for for uh for tom staying in the group and it was difficult for ted because ted as he mentions in the book um felt like in part you know obviously you know a huge part of the doom growth success for ted too was from tom's hit-making ability as a writer and stuff like that and performer. Well, the Van Halen story is a fascinating one as, as well. And one of the stories from the book that's gotten a lot of attention uh, from reviewers is the story of uh, what almost happened at the beginning of the band's uh, start, that David Lee Roth might not have been there to begin with. It could have been Sammy Hagar from the get-go. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, from Ted's perspective, he, he looks at that and he thinks about how it would have been the biggest mistake in rock history. And I think that kind of gets lost in the, maybe lost in the shuffle because the rest of the story is, you know, a little bit more titillating, but yeah, it's true. Ted heard Van Halen in a, a nightclub in Hollywood and loved the band and particularly was taken by Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing. I mean, that was really the, what sealed the deal for him, but he thought the band had good songs and you know whether they were a good live band. But when he got uh, Van Halen in the studio to do a demo uh, session, he was a little bit worried about Dave's vocals. It was, it was something where he didn't think Dave necessarily was going to be able to hold up under the, the um, you know, the basically the bright lights of the studio, that he wasn't going to be able to do it. Um, maybe where if you tried to make a record with him, it was going to cause problems where he wasn't going to be able to pull it off. But, you know, as Ted mentions, you know, in a, in a matter of whatever, a few weeks after mulling over this idea, well, maybe I could give Sammy Hagar a call. Um, and Ted really is, been adamant about the fact that that was something he told only to his engineer and was just something he was just really thinking about because he wanted to give it more time to see what was going to develop. But, you know, Dave really won him over. and He did a complete 180 on Dave where he thought that, uh, 
you know, the writing, the lyrics were so amazing, and Dave's personality, and all the things we associate with David Lee Roth, and, and that there were, you know, there was vocal talent there. It just needed to be, you know, for, to use a football analogy, be coached up, and that's what Ted set out to do was to coach Roth up about, you know, here's what we're going to do. Um, here's what you do well, and we're going to really, really focus on those things, and we're going to make uh, those things the David Lee Roth uh, vocal approach. And, you know, Ted had been, as, as I mentioned, a, quite a successful singer himself, and was the right guy to, to spend time with Roth and spend a lot of time with him, and it worked out great. But yeah, it's uh, you know I think yeah Ted would kind of point to the fact that you know it went from being a, a you know sort of a something that he was mulling over to immediately you know within a matter of weeks he was immediately struck with the fact that this would have been a terrible idea. You know, this this is the guy, this is the right guy for the band. And he still thinks that uh, well perhaps their biggest hit Jump was way too pop for a band that he thought of as a rock band. Yeah, I mean, I think that was something, too, that, that for Ted, you know, Ted was trying to think about what was basically what he felt to be the band's identity, which was sort of, you know, a hard rock band that, that wrote um, radio-friendly songs. And for him, when he heard the Jumps song idea, he was just thinking it was too far afield from that. And it was also, I think, really, really stuck on the fact that he thought that Eddie Van Halen is one of the best musicians in the whole world. And he talks about, he compares him to Charlie Parker in the book and he will sell you that. He thinks he's one of the three greatest musicians of the 20th century. Um, and so he kept thinking about why would a guy who's this good at guitar be playing keyboards? Like he should just play guitar. And it wasn't about the guitar hero aspect as much as it was much more that he just felt that there was such a singular voice in the instrument, something so magnificent, you know, maybe like a Louis Armstrong or something like that. So like, why would Louis Armstrong play the piano? when he could play the trumpet like he could play it or something like that. I mean, it was just that type of thing for Ted. And so he was lukewarm about the idea, especially because it was so such a keyboard-driven song. But as Ted says in the book, he really admits that, you know, he he uh, admires Ed for sticking with his idea and kind of basically convincing Ted, like, you know, you got it wrong. I've got it right. Let's go forward and do this song. And then the song came together. And, you know, I think something else has kind of gotten lost in the shuffle, too, that Ted really tried to make clear to me was that, you know, he, he liked the song, as a pop song, he thought, this is a cool song. He just thought it's not the right song for Van Halen to do. He didn't think. But, of course, you know, it turned out to be a number one hit, and it was a, a game changer for Van Halen. And Ted gives all credit in the world to Ed Van Halen for, for seeing his vision through to the end. A lot of highs in the book, a lot of lows as well. And I, I think one of my favorite stories is when he was trying to get to Cheech and Chong signed to Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah, that's that was a funny story. He didn't tell me that right away. I don't remember when he told me that. It was sort of maybe halfway to the book process. And as soon as I heard that story, I was like, well, that one's got to go in the book. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, it's interesting. Ted went from being a guy who in 1967 was on the cover of of magazines and they were, you know, he, they were minor stars and had a, had a top 10 hit to uh, by 1970, where he was just, a, you know, basically a, like a grunt for Warner Brothers. He was a tape listener, which meant that he went to this windowless room inside of Warner Brothers headquarters and sat there and just listened to tapes all day. And um, he, he also tried to you know, kind of prowl around on the, the Sunset Strip and just see what was around. Just, you know, you're trying to basically prove that you could have an ear for talent. And he, he saw this band of the Troubadour, the band, this, this comedy act called uh, Cheech and Chong. And he just was, thought this was the greatest thing ever. He thought these guys are great. And yeah, and then uh, he went to the big A&R meeting and got, to, got up the, the opportunity to say something. And Mo Austin, who's a legend in the music industry, like Frank Sinatra's right-hand man, basically, at the record label, said, okay, all right, you like this this group, Ted? We'll you know we'll go check them out, and then <laughs> and then when Ted called to say, "Hey, good news, guys, we're gonna we're gonna send a guy from Warner Brothers down to see you guys at the Troubadour," uh, the one of the guys in Chicago informed Ted that they were too late that they were uh, already signed to A and M. So Ted kind of had to have his tail between his legs so that I can go back and tell the boss that, "Oh yeah, we're late. You know, we missed we missed the boat on those guys." And hard to believe too that Ted contemplated leaving the music business in 1970. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those really those interesting, you know, hopefully people who pick up the book will will um, take some sort of lesson away from that. I mean, I think that's a really important moment for any person, you know, where you feel discouraged, where you say, well, I know I've had all this, this, I've been a musician my entire life and I've been successful at it and I love it, but you know what, I just can't pay the bills and it's not working and, I, and no one's giving me a chance. And um, yeah, you know, it's, it's really amazing because Ted thought about being a school teacher or being, being a um, a you know, book salesman clerk. He, he was, you know, he's a very educated person. He graduated from uh, Santa Clara uh, University, and so uh, 
uh, college-educated guy, but um, yeah, as I said at the end of the book, when I did my afterward, I said, "Aren't we all glad that Ted didn't decide to sell books for, you know, for a career?" <laughs> I think we're all glad that he didn't decide to become a school teacher. You know, he might have been a good teacher, but would have missed out on a lot of stuff. Well, it's a fascinating story, and he really seems like an interesting and and comes across as a very decent guy throughout the book as well. So. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. It's been great to talk with you about it. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for being with us, and we wish you much success with the book. Pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. You guys have a great night. Thank you. Greg Renoff talking about his work with Ted Templeman on Ted's memoir, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, and some great stories there along the way. I think my favorite one, the story about Cheech and Chong trying to get them signed, and <laughs> Tommy Chong says, oh, if you want to you see us, man, Buy the new album from AM. We already signed with them. <laughs> Oops. Just a little late. Tough business along the way there. Uh, anyway, a lot of fun. Our thanks to Greg Renoff for joining us. Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter. Some wonderful stories about modern family. Yeah, because I, I think because it ran for so long and it's pretty contemporary, you tend to forget how much it changed uh, in its portrayal of, of a gay couple on television in a very different way. Then it was done on Will and Grace and really broke a lot of ground with that. And and, uh, and that's, it's going to be one of those shows that we look back on in 15 or 20 years as, I think, one of the all-time greats. I think so as well. I mean, it's a show that I, I watched sporadically, but, yeah, and, and not just the relationships. The, the way it told the stories, too, of, of all the characters was very different from what a lot of other shows had done. Yeah, I mean, they took that mockumentary approach that uh, The Office and others have used, but, but kind of tweaked it along the way. But also the idea of taking three separate storylines mm -hmm. within the family each week was a new way of looking at things. So a lot of fun to talk about a wonderful book from Mark Freeman. Thanks for joining us uh, this week on the podcast. Thanks to Mark Freeman. Thanks to Greg Runoff. And we'll see you next time here on Downtown.